Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing acute coronary syndrome. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, my name is Jamie and I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. My name is Craig Douglas. I'm one of the consultants in emergency medicine at Queen's Medical Centre. So, uh, Craig, um, working in the emergency department, I think um, I don't think a day goes by uh, when there isn't a, at least one patient for me to clerk who presents as uh, chest pain. Um, and of course, the, I suppose the, the key differential to think about is, is acute coronary syndrome (ACS). I suppose the first question is, um, what exactly is ACS, and what is it not? Okay. Uh, yeah. Good question. Um, well, the first thing I suppose that I'd like to say is you're absolutely right. Um, obviously, working in the emergency department, we see a huge number of patients coming in with undifferentiated chest pain. It's probably our second most common presenting complaint. Um, and if you review the literature, we have a fairly good idea that about 10% of the patients that we see who come in with chest pain will go on to have a, a diagnosis of ACS or acute coronary syndrome. Mm-hmm. What exactly is ACS? Well, I mean, that is a spectrum of disease, really, that ranges through from unstable angina through a non-ST elevation MI through to an ST elevation MI. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I would define unstable angina as ischemic pain that's more severe, frequent or prolonged than normal, mm-hmm. particularly pain that's sort of lasting longer than 15 minutes, pain occurring with little or, or no exertion, pain that's associated with significant sort of nausea, vomiting, marked sweating or breathlessness, or someone who's hemodynamically stable. These are things that shouldn't happen with someone who has a, a stable cardiac diagnosis. Mm. And then in terms of the patients who actually have myocardial infarction, well, these are patients who have ischemic symptoms with actual evidence of, of myocardial necrosis. And for us, that essentially means that they have a, a raised troponin level. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and then also you've got STEMI at the other end, which we'll get on into the end, as well as, as all of that with the, the classic ST elevation picture seen sure. on, on an ECG. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, so that's what ACS is, and, and I suppose what it isn't. So stable well, yeah, angina so is out of that. Sorry, picture. I, I, f- I forgot what you, I forgot the second part of your yeah. question there. What 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 is it not? Well, mm. you know, we we talked about you know ten percent of the chest pain that we mm. see will, will be ACS. What so ninety <laughs> Exactly, it's 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 everything else, mm. and that's going to be quite a heterogeneous group. Mm. There's, there's going to be a significant number of patients there who do have um, you know, very significant disease urgent diagnoses to make your patients coming in with pulmonary embolism, mm. neurotic dissection, pneumothorax, pneumonia. Mm. Uh, that's going to form a significant part but probably the larger proportion of your patients are, are those who come in with, with non-urgent diagnoses. These will be patients with uh, reflux, dyspepsia, mm-hmm. musculoskeletal chest pain, pericarditis, 
So it's it's going to be a, a heterogeneous group of patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so you know, you're you're uh, the consultant in charge of, of blue team, which is which is majors in, in our emergency departments. Um, so you know. F1 of yours is, has gone off to, to Clark patient, you've seen on the screen, they're in with query ACS. Um, what are the, the key questions you, you would want that F1 to have asked the patient before they come in and report back to you? Okay, um, so there's nothing real rocket science about this. Um, the history taking will pretty much take on the standard sort of structure that um, the F1 will be used to having come through medical school. I suppose um, I'd like them to have been able to take a good history of the pain. Mm. Um, and I suppose that in the mnemonic, Socrates is probably well known to, mm. to most. Um, but it's, it's really important. So Socrates, for, for those who don't know, stands for sight, onset, character, radiation, associated symptoms, time course of the pain, exacerbating and relieving features and, and severity. And that's, that's a lot of useful information there. Um, you're also going to want to know about the past medical history, particularly when you're, you're trying to find out about risk factors mm-hmm. um, for underlying coronary artery disease. Medications will be useful to know about as well. Um, particularly when you're you're planning what treatment you may be wanting to give, and, and obviously allergies falls into that mm. same that same bracket. Um, from the same point of view of wanting to know about cardiac risk factors, smoking is going to be important. Alcohol is going to be important, and family history of, of premature coronary artery disease mm. is going to be another key question. I suppose that the caveat that I would add to this is that. Um, these features are all important when they're taken together. Mm. It's very difficult, just isolating them one feature at a time doesn't particularly alter your probability of whether you have acute coronary syndrome or not. Mm. But it's when you take everything together between the, the history, patient's age, their risk factors, and then also what you see on their, their investigations, which we'll go on to, I'm sure, a bit later, sure. that's really going to sort of alter your perception of how likely it is that the patient in front of you has acute coronary syndrome or not. Mm. And, so, and so you want that all of those key bits all together? and, and Yeah, absolutely. It's about taking every, all that information mm. um, in turn. I mean, to, just to, to give you an example, for instance, um, if you were just looking at the the character of pain to, mm. as, a, as a clue as to whether that patient has acute coronary syndrome or not, it, it's very difficult to glean any meaningful information. There's some work done by quite a prominent emergency consultant in Manchester called Rick Body when he was doing his, his PhD work a few years ago now, basically showing that you know, I think the overall incidence of patients with MI in his his undifferentiated chest pain population he was looking at was about 16%. Mm. And patients who came in with the sort of classical, sort of heavy, crushing central chest pain, their incidence was about 22%. But also the, the patients who came in sort of describing classical indigestion, their mm. incidence or their prevalence, sorry, of of MI was also 22%, so it made no difference just looking at that one factor mm. 
does not significantly alter your probability of having mm-hmm. ACS at the end of the day, but all the information taken together put into part of a scoring system, then that can be really useful. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose, like, like you said, the um, taking the history, but also looking at its relevancy as well, I suppose. And, and so, I mean, <clears throat> so many patients who, who may be a query ACS or I clerk or I see, so they might be a, a gentleman in their 40s, you know, that, that risk age group, and I say any family history of heart disease, and they'll say, oh, yes, my father in their 90s had a heart attack, and you, but you watch them, maybe want more of that, any younger people developing yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely, I think that, that is important information to know. Mm. I mean, so we, we just sort of touched then about uh, sort of the character of the pain and, and, and you know, very often hear the, the term cardiac sounding chest pain and I'm, I miss, yeah. I'm, I'm quite guilty yeah. about using that as well in, sure. in some of my S-bars and things. Sure. Um, wh- what does that mean to you and, and what, what, what is cardiac sounding <laughs> chest pain? Well, it, it's an interesting term really, isn't it? I mean, mm. I think you can, you can talk about sort of classical anginal pain. Mm. Um, for me, that sort of any real pain or discomfort in the front of the chest, the neck, the shoulders, the jaw, the arms, that's precipitated by physical exertion and relieved by rest, you know, after five minutes or so. I think you, you can talk about classical anginal pain mm-hmm. in that way. But as we touched on earlier, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult and, and quite dangerous Mm. Um, to use the character of the pain um, as a, a discriminating feature in the patient that's coming into you with an undifferentiated acute onset of, of chest pain because we know that um, a large number of patients who go on to have an ACS diagnosis present what you might call sort of atypically, mm. not with the, the classical mm. central crushing chest pain, particularly um, elderly patients, mm. diabetic patients, female patients, they often um, present without that sort of classical central heavy crushing chest pain. Mm. Um, so I think we need to be very careful um, just in, in terms of putting too much emphasis on the, mm. on the character of the pain. Um, it, it's interesting again, I mean, if I can go back to some, some work from, from Manchester, I think um, some of the things that, that they noted were actually associated with a, a significantly increased um, likelihood of, of having uh, MI or ACS. If you come in with chest pain and, and you're vomiting, mm. you've got about a 40% chance of actually you know, having uh, an MI of some description. And if you come in with chest pain and, and you're, you're sweating heavily, it actually it's, it's more than a 50% chance of, of having an MI. Regardless so, of what the pain is like. Exactly. So, mm. I mean, it, it's interesting that sort of the vomiting and the sweating seem a bit more important there than the actual mm. character of the of the pain itself. Mm. And um, there was there was also a there was a systemic review published in JAMA last year um, from an American group, and they were they were looking at you know specific findings, specific risk factors from your your clinical history and exam and what made you more suggestive of, of having an acute coronary syndrome. Mm. Um, so they presented their findings in terms of likelihood ratios. Will your listeners understand might, about likelihood um, ratios? Need a bit of a recap on likelihood uh, ratios. In simple terms, um, so you, you have a pre-test probability mm. of, of having a diagnosis. So 
for instance, we're chatting about our undifferentiated chest pain population, we know that 10% of those patients are going to have ACS, so you can say that's their pre-test probability, if you like. So a likelihood um, ratio will give you a sort of a, a, a multiplication, if you mm. like, of how likely if they have a specific feature um, sure. of them actually having the condition. Um, and I think what they, they came up with from the systemic review last year was that actually one of the things from history is that pain radiating to both arms mm. was more significantly associated with a final diagnosis of acute coronary mm. syndrome that had a likelihood ratio of just over two and a half mm. um, which is quite significant mm. uh, certainly something that would get you thinking you know if that's the sort of pain that's being described to you um, but actually the I said the take home message from that particular study was that individual factors taken on their own they don't cause a, a huge jump in the, in the likelihood mm. um, or not of, of developing ACS but as we'll, as we'll come on to I'm sure information taken together as, mm. as part of a risk sort of stratification mm. score is much more powerful data. Sure. So I, I know that if I speak to my students and, and uh, regularly do and you, you say so you know what what uh, is cardiac chest pain? They will say the classic. It feels like somebody sat on your chest. You sweat. You feel sick. You may vomit. It goes to the left arm. It's uh, to the left jaw, tingling in the left hand. Um, but I mean, you know, I've, I've, you know, I think we've all got the anecdotes. I've seen a chap with an ST elevation MI where the pain was purely in the mouth. Yeah. Um, uh, just the other week, a chap with indigestion pain coming in. I've got indigestion, and it was uh, an an an, an end stemmy. Yeah. I'm sure you've got similar anecdotes. Absolutely. And I, I suppose one of the take-home messages would be that any patient that comes in with you know acute onset pain in the chest, the neck, the mm. shoulders, the jaw, and you, you don't have an alternative explanation for that pain, mm. you've got to think ACS. Mm. You know, it, that's, you've got to think ACS until <coughs> you're happy that it's not. Mm. That would be one of the take homes. So, I mean, I remember when I was an F1 and uh, doing an MEAU shift, and um, uh, on a patient in their 40s with uh, chest pain, and I mentioned gourd as a differential. And uh, my consultant uh, looked at me with a not very uh, good look and said, uh, you, you cannot put down gourd to a gentleman in their 40s and 50s with no previous dyspepsic history, no Barrett's esophagus, he's never been known to gastro, had an endoscopy. You cannot put it down to gastritis without ruling out things like ACS, you know, more serious life-threatening illness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, I suppose that's one of the, the sort of ED maxims really is what what is the worst possible diagnosis here and how can I... You can never really exclude things 100%. Mm. No test is 100%, you know, sensitive, but how can I as much as possible rule out the worrying diagnoses that I do not want to miss. Um, so, I mean, we've talked just a bit there in, in the history. Um, so, uh, just to reiterate, the, the, what are the biggest cardiac risk factors then? The, the things that you really need to have asked about in that history? Sure. Um, I think the, the biggest cardiac risk factors are, are uh, diabetes, mm. um, smoking, dyslipidemia, uh, hypertension, family history of the premature coronary artery disease 
obesity and I think also to a certain extent in patients with peripheral arterial disease as well give you a clue that they are generalised vascular path and those would be the things that I'd be mm. definitely asking about as part of the history. Yeah. Of course those patients with diabetes are at risk of that phenomenon as the, the silent MI aren't the, they? The silent MI or, or what would be the, the atypical mm. ACS presentation and um, you know these these patients are much less likely to be diagnosed in the ED, and their in hospital mortality, as a result, is actually is far greater mm. um, than the patients who do present with the typical chest pain. So you really do need to have your wits about you with these patients. That these um, patients that often present maybe just with shortness of breath or palpitations, generalized weakness. Uh, or a syncopal episode and these are all things you know with that history of diabetes where you, you, you need to have your mind mm. engaged um, you need to you, you definitely need to be getting the ECG and giving that close scrutiny um, and considering about whether you, you need to be checking you know their markers of myocardial injury as well mm. okay so I suppose um, we talked about this um it's you know actually a small percentage of our patients coming in who actually do have ACS, and we mentioned some other rather potentially serious uh, other differential diagnoses such as pneumothorax dissection. Um, so, what features in the history might point away from a diagnosis of ACS? Okay, um, so I guess al along those those lines, there, uh, you know, if we we think about what are the diagnoses that we hmm. we want to to exclude, really the so the, the, the worrying diagnoses that we already sort of touched on, you know, ACS, PE, mm. uh, dissection, pneumothorax, pneumonia. So there are features in the history that would may point you towards one of those other sort of worrying diagnoses. You know, in terms of, of pulmonary embolism, you know, does the patient in front of you actually have, have symptoms in keeping with a, a DBT? Do they have classical PE symptoms of that pleuritic chest pain and shortness of breath? You know, are there other risk factors for PE? Have they been immobilized recently? Have they had surgery within the last four weeks or so? Um, you know, is there a history of, of previous you know, venous thromboembolism with them? Mm -hmm. Is there a history of active malignancy? Is it, is it a patient who's, who's there coughing up blood in front of you? These are all things that might mm -hmm. lead you down that sort of line of inquiry. Um, when it comes to thinking about dissection, there are two sort of main groups of patients who, who end up with an aortic dissection. You know, the first is, is your patient who tend to be a little older with a history of hypertension, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of demographic. And then there's your, your younger patients who've got that history of connective tissue disease, your Marfan's, your Ehlers-Danlos, that sort of thing. That might point you down that, that road. And then there's, there's obviously that sort of classical um, ED teaching of, uh, of chest pain plus one when, when you come to think about aortic dissection, so you know, is this someone who's presenting with chest pain plus something else? You know, mm. whether that's symptoms in keeping with a stroke or a TIA, or uh, you know, an ischemic limb mm. or an ischemic gut, or or paralysis. Mm. Um, you know, these are all things that can present in patients who are having a dissection as as a result of that. Mm. You know, the pattern of the the arteries that are are being involved. Um, mm. So that would, those would tend to point you down that route. 
your pneumothorax, obviously maybe your, your younger smokers, you know, your tall skinny guys, your mm. smokers, heavy cannabis users, mm. or your, your older patients who've got that um, significant respiratory history um, might, you know, make you think more about that as a diagnosis and your, your pneumonias, you know, your tends to obviously be your older patients for the majority of cases with fever, productive cough. That's going to make you take you down that that road. Um, beyond that, you know there are going to be other features that are going to make you think more of a of a reflux disease mm. or a pericarditis. Um, we could go into those as well, but we'll probably be here all day. <laughs> Hopefully, that sort of answers your question about yeah. some of the other things mm. that you'd be you'd be thinking about, particularly when you're trying to rule out the other sort of worrying diagnoses. So those are the sort of questions you want, to, you know, the F1 you're working with to have thought about and, and to have asked and, and sort of the differentials that you, you want going through their head as well. I suppose before the, the F1 comes to you to sort of discuss the patient, um, what are the, the key investigations you, you wanted to have taken place before you had that consultation? Okay, I think when it, when it comes to thinking about acute coronary syndromes, mm. I mean, two you really want are your ECG and your troponin mm. level. Um, important to, to remember with, with the ECG, um, in patients that go on to have a, a final diagnosis of ACS, as, as many as 40 to 60% of them will initially have a non-diagnostic ECG. Mm. So the fact that they may have a normal ECG first up by no means rules out the fact mm. that they're having ACS, but it is an important investigation. Obviously, if you see something on there, you know, ST depression or other maybe less specific changes, um, then that's, you know, you've, you've got your diagnosis really. But um, I think also important to remember the importance of doing serial ECGs, particularly in your patient who remains symptomatic. Mm. So doing serial ECGs and then, as I say, um, getting that troponin level as well is going to be really mm. crucial. Um, so, I mean, we'll talk about troponin in a little bit, um, but I suppose going back to the ECG, um, so I suppose ST elevation MI we'll talk in a bit as well, so that, that's, that's to a certain bracket in itself, but think about um, an end STEMI or, or an unstable angina, sort of ischemic ECG changes, uh, what are they? What, what are the sort of things you, you look for? Okay. Yeah, so I mean, you could you could talk all day mm -hmm. about this, really. But in in brief, um, the things that you want to be looking for um, in the very early stages, all that you might see in someone who's having a STEMI is sort of hyperacute T mm -hmm. waves. So look for those sort of peak to tall T waves. Um, but then beyond that, obviously the ST segment changes are the big one, whether that's elevation. Mm -hmm. um, with people having a STEMI or ST depression and, and patients having end STEMI or acute coronary syndrome. Uh, T-wave inversions, obviously, new left bundle branch block. Mm. And in, indeed, in patients who have existing left bundle branch block, you got to think about having things called like the Scarbosa criteria, mm. um, which again, you know, I don't expect F1s coming into the job to, to really know about, but it's some, certainly something that you know, the senior clinician mm. on their reviews is going to have to consider. Mm. Um, probably won't go into them in too much detail now. If, mm. if people are interested, they can look them up online. Yeah. Mm. That's fine, yeah. Okay. Um, so, 
I mean, we've mentioned uh, troponin. Um, what is troponin? <laughs> yeah, what is troponin? Um, so uh, troponins, um, there are sort of two main ones we look at, troponin I, troponin T. Um, they're basically uh, regulatory proteins which control the interaction of actin and myosin within cardiac myocytes. And, you know, when there is cardiac damage and damage to that myocyte cell membrane, then, then those proteins are, are released into the bloodstream. Mm. And um, that's a blood test which is taken six hours following the, the chest pain, isn't well, it, at the moment in well, the department? Well, <laughs> I mean, where do you start with mm. that? That's, a, that's just a whole can of worms, really. Mm. Um, so at, the, at the moment in our department, yes, that's what we're doing. Um, so we're we are using a standard, what's called a sensitive troponin mm. measurement, um, which has been around for a, a long time now. We're, we're taking a, a level at, at six hours to essentially exclude an, a non-STEMI mm. um, in our patients with query ACS. Um, there are high sensitivity troponins now available. Um, and if you look at the sort of updated nice guidance there are there are two um, high sensitivity troponins which they recommend if you do them at baseline and then uh, a second sample mm. at three hours uh, you know if those are negative then you can exclude an, an NSTEMI mm. based on on those um, so there's that sort of thing but then there are there are also uh, as I say clinical scoring systems which mm which incorporate a sort of baseline normal sensitivity troponin into their sort okay. of um, risk stratification. Mm. Um, and that's, and they're thinking more about acute coronary syndrome in, mm. in, in general, so that includes your unstable angina patients. It's mm. not limited to just your, your NSTEMI group. Yeah, okay. And what are those risk criteria called? Well, I suppose that the one, the one that I really like is is the heart score, mm. um, which was sort of originally published in two thousand and eight, and has been validated sort of first in two thousand thirteen. Um, since then, and as I say, it's it's a risk stratification score for that undifferentiated chest pain population that that come into to ED. It looks at, at five main things. It looks at the history, risk factors, age of the patient, ECG findings, and uh, a baseline troponin level. The score is from zero to ten. Basically, um, patients who score very lowly, so in the sort of zero to three group, there's a, a less than two percent risk of those patients going on to have a, a major sort of adverse cardiac mm. event within the next six weeks. Mm. So that would be patients having an MI, mm. patients needing a PCI or a cabbage or, or indeed dying um, as a result of a major cardiac event. So I mean that's essentially your very low risk group that mm. you should be able to send home from the emergency department. And then your, your high risk group, um, sort of scoring 7 to 10, these are patients that have more than a 50% chance of going on to have one of these major adverse cardiac events within the next six weeks. So it's clearly a group that you really need to focus mm. on providing sort of very aggressive coronary mm. intervention. Mm. Okay. okay. 
Um, so I think before we go any further, as we've, we've talked a bit about stable and unstable angina. Um, and you know, we've already mentioned stable angina does, does not fall into ACS. So um, what would point, so a patient with a known history of stable angina comes to you with chest pain, what, how would you discern through the history about that it might be an unstable angina rather than stable? Sure, so I think we sort of touched on mm -hmm. elements of, of this already. Um, so your, your unstable angina patient, as I say, that's, that's going to be pain that's either more severe, mm. more frequent, or, or more prolonged than, than normal. Um, the sort of classical teaching is, you know, pain lasting for more than 15 minutes. Um, as I say, you know, pain that comes on with little or, or no exertion. And then there's the, the other sort of associated features that I chatted about that you mm. shouldn't really get with a stable angina picture. So that patient who's, who's vomiting, mm. that patient who's really sweaty or really breathless, or, or comes in with a low blood pressure. I mean, these are features that you shouldn't be seeing with a stable angina episode. It's gonna make you think that there's something far more significant going on. Yeah. I mean, that says, I mean, when I'm clerking patient and, and they come in and, and this is a query ACS and they mentioned the stable angina, I always try and ask, you know, how stable is your stable angina? You know, is it a very predictable, I can walk a mile and I know I will get it and I take two sprays and I sit there for a minute and I know it will go away uh, to get that kind of a picture into the mind of what is it like normally with this chronic condition and then to get an idea of how it might have changed to yeah, give you that idea. Yeah absolutely that's you know that's I think that's a really great lesson for for anyone who's thinking about how you, how you take that history just you know really being able to get that clear in your mind what their normal pattern of diseases and then how things have changed today that's brought them understanding really what's brought them into hospital because they don't come in mm. to hospital every time that mm. they, they get an angina episode so just yeah getting that clear in your mind is going to be really key. So um, some of our listeners here will be you know getting that phone call and, and when they're on call at, at two o'clock in the morning to come running to a ward that there's a, a patient who suddenly developed chest pain and not looking very well with it and the nurses are concerned um, you know we see it in resus, the uh, ambulance crew calling, we've got an active chest pain, they don't look well. Um, so you've got that patient that's sat in front of you, um, the nurse is getting the monitoring on, uh, what's the management plan, what are the priorities for, our, for sorting out our patient? Sure, okay. So it's, I mean, if, if that sort of patient's in the emergency department, mm. we're going to take them to the resource room. Mm. You know, if, if that patient, as you say, is a, an F1 on the ward, mm. You know where you're not gonna have that option really but you do want to get some monitoring on them mm. straight away i think several things really need to be happening at the same time really with this sort of patient so it's it's going to be important as i say that they get adequate monitoring on you're going to want to start taking that history and examination for your patient so that you can start to form an idea mm. of, of what you think is happening clinically um, you're going to need an urgent ECG to see what's going on. You know, is this a patient having a STEMI in front of your eyes? Mm. You know, or are there other features of cardiac ischemia? Is it something else? Um, you're going to need to get access, IV access, pretty quickly. Get your routine bloods taken off, including a troponin level. Um, and then I think in terms of your your basic management, you know, if this is someone you think is having a an ischemic cardiac episode in front of you. Mm. I think the old teaching used to be um, the mnemonic MONA, 
mm. which is sort of morphine, oxygen, nitrates, aspirin. Mm. Sort of gone away from that a little bit now. It's we've lost the O from that. The oxygen has has gone away. Mm. And we had we had the avoid study back in two thousand thirteen, which sort of basically showed in in patients who are having a STEMI, mm. you know, if they weren't hypoxic, and and you gave them sort of additional oxygen which they didn't really need then you you increase their chances of having a, a recurrent MI mm. or having quite a malignant dysrhythmia mm. so we've lost that ox- oxygen for all patients unless as I say their oxygen mm. saturations are below their target range so for normal patients if they've got sats 94 to 98 we're happy with that mm. and then for your your sort of older chronic CO2 retainer you're 88 to 92 percent mm. so Apart from those patients, we, we don't tend to give oxygen now, but mm. the mainstays of treatment initially will be making sure you get that 300 milligrams of aspirin into mm. them, because that really does significantly decrease your chances of going on to have further sort of um, you know vascular events and getting their pain controlled. Nitrates obviously is the, the first line and then morphine um, if you need to for, for pain that is, is refractory. Not, you know, in in the worst case scenarios, if you pin still there, you've got to be thinking about nitrate infusions. Mm. So I suppose that that would be the sort of initial mm. management. Um, your further treatment, you know, if you if you really think this is an acute coronary episode, can be guided a little bit about what you see on the ECG. Because mm. your your obviously your treatment for STEMI is going to be very different for what you do for for your patients with you know sort of end STEMI slash unstable angina. Mm. Okay, so um, so shall we talk a bit about STEMI then? So we'll, sure. we'll go with the, the the big one first. So um, you see ST elevation mm. in the ECG. What do we do then? Uh, well, you you don't panic. <laughs> um, I think. So you've already started to initiate treatment um, for your patient. The key thing is recognizing the STEMI and mm. then getting very quickly on to your friendly neighborhood cardiologist. Because mm. these are patients that, that need to go to the, the cath lab for, for PCI. Mm. Um, you know, the, the alternative treatment is thrombolysis for these patients, but it's been so long since a patient, certainly in, in this trust, has needed to stay here for thrombolysis. I couldn't even tell you when it was. All of our patients now go for, for PCI. Um, patients that go for PCI after their STEMI, their their outcomes sort of across the board are much better, assuming that you can get them to the cath lab, sort of that door to skin time, less than 90 minutes. Mm. And, you know, in pretty much 100% of cases in this region, that is possible to do. So... Mm. The only additional thing that we would tend to do before they go for um, their their PCI would be to give them a drug called Prasagrel, which is just a, a very strong um, platelet inhibitor. Um, you know, it's like your aspirin and your clopidogrel. Yeah, like aspirin and clopidogrel, but it's it's even it's got an even more powerful antiplatelet effect than clopidogrel mm-hmm. does. Uh, the reason we don't tend to give that in the sort of NSTEMI pathway is that there there are also increased bleeding risks mm-hmm. um, with that particular drug so it it's tend tends to be just used for patients with STEMI. So I mean um, I, I remember being because uh, I, I came to the, I went to the University of Nottingham and uh, I remember the consultant um, 
in cardiology teaching us time is muscle with these patients. Absolutely. So the, the longer they are in pain, that is muscle that is dying and, and your outcome is, is going to be worse and worse and, and so it is a time critical thing. Um, I, mean, I mean, certainly in, in, in this trust, um, patients who are with the ambulance crew and show SC elevation shouldn't come to our emergency department, they go elsewhere. But I suppose there is that, that lesson there also gets across about, we've, we've talked already, the serial ECGs, things yeah. change, don't yeah, they? And if your patient's right. having that prolonged period of chest pain that yeah. may be refractory to, to uh, analgesia to make sure it has this turned into a STEMI, make sure you don't miss it. I mean, essentially, I mean, there is that argument that uh, STEMI is, is not really something that should be treated in the, in the ED. There is mm. very little that we can actually do apart from trying to control the pain, getting some mm. antiplatelets on board. Mm. I mean, those are just, those are patients that need to go and see a cardiologist as, mm. as soon as possible. <laughs> I suppose if you're on the ward, get the, well, as you said, speak to the cardiologist as soon as possible, alert the, the nurses there. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you have an off-site cath lab, if they're not in your hospital, that is a blue light transfer, isn't it? Absolutely. To be organised. Yeah. 999, get this patient over as quickly Absolutely. as possible. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but um, also not forgetting a new left bundle branch block is also PCIable, isn't it? Sure. Uh, and also not to forget the posterior and the posterior as well. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it does tend to catch people out as yeah. well, so important to remember that. And then the patient with ischemic symptoms that has ST depression in their anterior chest leads um, got to think about posterior STEMI, get the posterior chest leads on as well and look for ST elevation there. Yeah. And um, to people listening, I would point them to Life in the Fast Lane. It's a fantastic uh, website and uh, their section in particular on posterior STEMI is, is brilliant. And not only how to read them, but also to take posterior chest leads because uh, it could be a bit tricky for some people. But uh, not want to be missed. Yeah, absolutely. So um, life in the fast lane is is fantastic for for all things emergency medicine related. Really, um, I suppose one of the other uh, resources I direct you to from a cardiology sort of standpoint is a, a chap called Amal Matu um, at the University of, of Maryland. He's really a sort of ECG cardiology wizard, and um, you know he. he he publishes a, a lot of really, really helpful things, helpful cases. You know, if you want to, if you want to learn more about ECGs and acute coronary syndromes, you know, it's it's worth um, checking out some of the stuff that he's done as well. And he's an avid fan of Twitter as well. He is. Uh, I he do is. follow him. Yeah. He's, uh, he's he regularly is. on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. okay, so uh, that's our STEMI management. What about our end STEMI management? Um, so again, I mean, if you've, we've, we've. We're seeing our patient who we suspect has ACS um, and no evidence of STEMI on their ECG. We're managing their ischemic pain with, with nitrates and we've given them aspirin. I think when you get to that point, you know, if, if you've got a patient who does have an ischemic looking ECG or you've got a positive baseline troponin back on them or indeed just someone who's got a very high risk history, um, then you're fine at that point going on and, and giving them clopidogrel, mm. getting that sort of maximal antiplatelet effect and giving them fondaparinu uh, or fondaparinux um, as that sort of antithrombotic treatment because really what you're trying to do for these patients is, is present, prevent further thrombosis in the coronary arteries. 
Um, the caveat to that would be uh, unless it is a patient who's got significant renal dysfunction, in which case you'd probably prefer to give them unfractionated heparin mm. rather than fondaparinate. Um, for your patients who maybe are less sick, you know, have a normal looking ECG, maybe don't have a baseline troponin, mm-hmm. um, they are stable and looking well, um, and maybe they, they don't really have that sort of real high risk history, then I think it is perfectly reasonable for that group of patients to, to wait on their baseline troponin becoming available, wait on being able to do a, a grace risk stratification for them before you decide on whether they do need to go on and have either clopidogrel or fondaparinux or even other things, you know, GP2B3A inhibitors, all, all sorts of other medications that you might consider for this group. Okay. Um, so you briefly mentioned a bit earlier about uh, GTN infusion, and, and certainly this is something that um, I didn't know about until I, I started working in the emergency department. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you do get that patient, you, you've given some GTN to, um, you're giving some aliquots of, of morphine to, but that pain is just not going away. Mm. And I think it's very useful if you're the, the F1 seeing these patients on the ward to have it in your back in mind, what's the next step? Um, so should, can we just talk a little bit about the GTN infusion, about how we, we set that up and, 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 you know, and, and where we go on from there? How you set it up? You ask kindly ask your cardiology nurse to set it up for you. I mean, I think if you're on the ward um, with this sort of patient, you really need to be getting them to uh, an area where you can provide, you know, sufficient monitoring at this mm-hmm. point, which really should be CCU. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to get them to CCU at this point. Uh, in terms of the infusion, you know, itself, uh, there are there are different. Um, drugs that you can use. You can use GTN, you can use isozorbide dinitrate. Mm. The actual prescriptions will, will vary slightly, but you can you can be guided by that. There will be an infusion guide that you can use um, with you know the drug in your particular clinical area. Mm. Um, the key is to start at a relatively low level of infusion um, and titrate the, the rate up. Because you, what you don't want to do is just suddenly drop the blood pressure dramatically. So you need to you need to go relatively steady um, with these patients um, and try and keep their systolic blood pressure at least over over ninety. Um, mm. Sort of aiming still for that that mean arterial blood pressure of over sixty five. Mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I suppose that's the that is the point. I suppose if you're in in A and E, your patient who you thought might have been going to a normal medical bed to await a troponin or whatever they're suddenly, like you said, they're going to a CCU, they're going to require that, that close monitoring. It's a potent vasodilator you're giving. Absolutely. And I suppose um, if you're on the ward, s- straight to somebody senior to get that patient off the ward, an unmonitored ward and not on to, to CCU. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um, so we're treating our patient, we're treating them appropriately, we've got them pain-free. Um, just thinking sort of further on, um, what are the complications patient's MI? Okay, um, so there are, there are a few that we need to think of. Um, you do get your patient um, who presents with you know their big anterior MI who's actually in cardiogenic shock and mm. they're tremendously difficult patients to, to try and manage and um, really need intensive care support to 
they've got any chance of surviving you know that initial insult um, after the the heart attack itself the, the things that you'll come across are obviously patients with heart failure um, patients with dysrhythmias whether that be you'll see ventricular tachycardias and you'll also see heart blocks Mm. Um, you know, in your patients with inferior or anterior MIs, you know, you, you'll see the second and, and third degree heart blocks. Um, you'll get patients who have recurrent infarcts, post-infarct angina, um, patients with pericarditis, sort of an, an autoimmune pericarditis, we call it Dressler syndrome, everyone loves an eponymous syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, ventricular septal defects, pretty rarely, and on a similar sort of theme, you can get patients who sort of have acute mitral regurge um, just due to papillary muscle you know, dysfunction or indeed rupture. And actually that, that can be fatal in, in quite a lot of, of occasions in patients who just have torrential regurge and, mm. and subsequent left heart failure. Okay, um, so finally Craig, I think we mentioned grade scoring a bit earlier. I think finally should we just sort of mention what that is and... and uh discuss that sure um, so uh, the grace score again that, that's another one of these um, risk stratification scores um, but this is this is for your patients who do have confirmed acute coronary syndrome and what we're looking at here is predicting their six-month mortality um, because that will impact on the choice of medications mm. that, that we want to give these patients um, and basically, for, for anyone who has a, a projected six-month mortality of more than 1.5%, then it's going to recommend giving them clopidogrel. Mm. And then for anyone who has that predicted mortality of, of more than 3%, these are patients where you're going to consider whether to give them the sort of GP2B3A inhibitors. So this is things like your tacagraglar mm. um, as a bridge to uh, an inpatient um, you know, coronary intervention. Um, so again, patients who have the more than 3% predicted six-month mortality, these are patients who should be considered for uh, inpatient uh, coronary intervention within 96 hours, so four days less than that. These are patients who can be managed more safely medically initially and then um, have further outpatient management either with angiogram or inducible stress testing. Mm-hmm. I suppose just uh, finally off, off, just off the top of my head, I think we, we mentioned a lot about uh, troponin and, and raised troponins and things. I think it's, it is worth remembering that other conditions can raise a troponin. Um, I mean, a classic one, an anecdote I do tell a lot is of a PE that was causing right heart strain, yeah. had ECG changes, had SD depression, and had a raise, uh, raised troponin as well. Um, if the patient hadn't suddenly become hypoxic, we might not have thought, well, could this be a, a PE? So there are other things that can raise the troponin. Sure. I think that is important. I mean, if you want to talk about what the absolute standard definition of a myocardial infarction is, yes, you need to have that documented evidence of a raised cardiac biomarker, which mm-hmm. for us is, is troponin. Um, but you also need to have either um, symptoms or evidence of cardiac ischemia so you know either that you know that classical ischemia history or you know ischemic ECG or sort of anatomical evidence and that might be with an, an echo that 
it mm. where you can demonstrate a, you know a regional wall motion abnormality as a result of, of ischemia yeah. I mean what you're talking about there are there are other things that can cause you know raised troponins so you mentioned PE is a fairly classical one um, you may see it with aortic dissection mm. you will see it in patients who have heart failure you will see it in patients who have chronic renal failure um, and you, you can have type 2 sort of myocardial injuries as well so these are these are where you you don't have that sort of primary um, you know disruption of an atheromatous coronary plaque these are, are patients where you have an increased myocardial oxygen demand mm. or you have a problem of actually delivering oxygen to the myocardium so your patients with tachydysrhythmias your patients with very severe anemia mm. or indeed your, your hypotensive patients they will sometimes end up with a, what we call a type 2 you know, myocardial injury mm, Absolutely I think um, sometimes with those patients so you mentioned heart failure and chronic kidney disease with the slightly raised troponin I've, I've known sometimes my seniors advise hold off the, sort of the ACS treatment necessarily and admit for a, a further troponin uh, as a, so a 12 hour troponin to, to check the, the trend well I think certainly what I would do in that sort of group of patients is that I would I would do a second troponin measurement three hours after the okay. initial one and, and look for that what we would call a sort of delta change mm. um, and whether you know, if, if the patient's got an initially raised level, you know, if, if it goes up by 20% more on the next level, then I think you can be fairly confident saying, okay, yes, you know, this, this is an acute coronary event here. That was the Take Orally Acute Coronary Syndrome podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to guidelines mentioned and you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.